Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mid-Mid-Masque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This I podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The result of the fourth edition of the Everest is firmly ensconced in the record books, but the Spring Carnival is just warming up. Saturday, October 31st, we'll see the running of the second Golden Eagle at Rose Hill Gardens, a set weights race for four-year-olds over 1,500 metres, carrying an astonishing purse of $7.5 million. One week after that, all roads lead to Newcastle for the second running of the Hunter for three-year-olds and upwards over 1,300 metres, carrying $1 million in prize money. Saturday the 21st of November, the action heads down the coast for the Gong, another million-dollar race for three-year-olds and upwards over the testing Kembla Mile. Savatiano won the Hunter last year, Mr Seawolf won the Gong. Who'll be joining them in the record books this year as huge prize money brings good horses to two famous provincial tracks. The valleys and peaks of the racing game were on display again last weekend when four-year-old mare It's Me sustained an injury to the near-fore tendon during the running of the Kosciuszko at Randwick. After watching her amazing winning performance, some keen observers were touting her as next year's Everest winner before she even got back to the enclosure. Her trainer, Brett Kavanagh, a former horsebreaker, shearer and knockabout, thought he was prepared for whatever setback this unforgiving business could throw at him. But this one hurt. Unbeaten in four runs, It's Me has enormous potential and Brett is hopeful a long spell and a special rehab program will see her back at the races this time next year. Brett Kavanagh is one of racing's best stories. Reared in the Queensland outback, he learned about horses from his grandfather before drifting into the shearing business, destined to set a world record. His training and breaking career began in Tokemwall. He later transferred to Albury, and two years ago he made the move to Scone, and he couldn't be happier. While waiting for improvements to be completed in Scone, he campaigned for some time at Toowoomba. During his Albury years, Brett reeled off 11 SDRA Trainers Premierships and was champion New South Wales Country Trainer three times. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast a much-travelled, happily married father of four who has crammed a hell of a lot into his 58 years. Brett Kavanagh, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, John. Mate, when did you become aware the mayor had sustained an injury? Um, one of my foremen alerted a slight lump on, uh, on Monday morning mm. and uh, to the naked eye you couldn't see a lot. So obviously we went in and scanned it. And um, there was a tear there. Goodness me. You mean a black hole was showing on the scan? Yeah, correct, John. Correct. Oh. And um been through this before as a two-year-old with us. Uh, same leg, different injury. Mm. So, um, yeah, look, it's, you know, that's racing. you just got to take the highs and lows and the, the hits and the falls. 
balls and get up and go again. Mm. Hey, Brett, that's obviously why she didn't race at all as a two- and three-year-old. Yeah, that's right, John. That's right, yep. Mm. So what are the plans? A long break and then a long, steady rehabilitation program. What if, You've got a bloke in Victoria who's going to help. Yeah, Lee Everson's, uh he's a bit of a maestro at, at, at these tendons. He receives horses from all over the world. And I don't know Lee personally, only phone conversations. But I think in America and, and parts of the world, you race your horse on Saturday and they go to these horse rehab resorts. They don't just go there with injuries. Mm. They go there to be rehabbed and, and get a bit of love and looked after. I suppose it would be like me and you going to the Gold Coast for a couple of weeks, Tappy. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Lee sort of brought that innovation to Australia and, um, yeah, he just doesn't take tendon horses. He takes, you know, chronic back horses and yeah. just gives love and, and he's obviously got the tools and uh, and the skills and, and believes in himself and he gets great results. Mm. Your scone complex became available when Greg Bennett decided to pull up stakes a couple of years ago to take on a role with the Aquas operation. And I think Greg actually alerted you, didn't he, to the fact that those stables were coming up and you jumped at it. Yeah, Greg was he was in there in full flight with 45 horses and he moved on to uh, another part of his career and, and we moved in and took the boxes over and and uh, I think I left, I got two horses and a black cat called Wendell. So... Uh, <laughs> We were very lucky at the time. We had a, had a big team of horses in ready in Albury, and yeah. whether it was Scone or somewhere, I was itchy footed, and I had I had about I think I was working sixty or seventy, but I had thirty five horses yeah. that had pretty much come all come into work within a sort of two to three week period. Therefore, they were on week 12, 13, 14 and ready to go to the races. So mm. uh, when Greg vacated the boxes, we moved in and. And we launched an attack on the hunter, and um, mm. we're pretty good. We unloaded a couple of winners the first day in Scone, but um, it's a bigger melting pot in the hunter, you know. Like I don't have to tell anyone, but you just pick up the paper and, and look. It comes to Musselbrook and Scone and Tamworth, and oh yeah, it's like a city meeting. Oh, and you get as wide as Maureen, think you're getting away from them, you know. And the first thing you see when you pull in the back door is Chris Lees's truck, you know. So uh, yeah. Um, it's it's just very competitive. It's healthy competition. It's clean competition, and it's a great place to train in the, mm. in the hunter. You know, I love it. Mm. Now, what about the Toowoomba exercise? How did that happen? I've I've got a soft spot in my heart for Toowoomba, and and don't ask me why. But I, the research I've done on training, going to Japan, and um, you know, Cliff Brown, when he had Tarn Per Farm, had these uphill tracks that he come home from. France with and uh, I spotted him at his place and I seen the sort of horses he was developing mm. physically and he had, he trained a lot of winners out of there. And I've always wanted a hill track um, mm. and we started experimenting with Toowoomba and we had good luck out of there and then it was just the climate um, and also the altitude and the fact that it's on a hill with a, I suppose it'd be four or six degrees radiance. Mm. It's just a place I'm not sure I want to live in Toowoomba, but it's a it's a great inland city, it's, um, and it's just got this wonderful training centre on it. Mm. And a lot of horses in work there, and they're not short of a race meeting, are they? No, they race. I, I, they're in excess of 50 meetings a year, and mm. 
and uh, they work. They used to work 600 there. I think they're, they're back down around about the 350, 400 work there every morning. Mm. And um, yeah, look, it's it's uh, it's. I don't know. I just got a bit of a love affair with it. Will I ever end up there? Probably not. But mm. uh, you like the joint. Yeah, I do. I love training horses there. They train themselves. You don't have to think about it much. <laughs> you spent your early years at a little place called Augathella in the Queensland outback, 750k from Brisbane and 85k from Charleville. Now, your maternal grandfather, Frank, had a huge impact on your early life. How would you describe this man, Brett, the product of his era, no doubt? He was, uh, he'd read nine children of his own. Mm. Um, I think they lost a baby, but he, he read eight. Mm. Five boys and three girls, which are all still alive. Um, and then he adopted me and, you know, he had to make a quid, um, you know, kangaroo skins, uh, possum pelts. Good, yeah. Bingos, you know, he was. You went to work with a corn meat sandwich and the side of a saddle, you know, and mm. and you come home at night for dinner. He was, uh, he was very hard. He went through a, a depression and a recession, uh, war times. He lived in a town called Alpha in Queensland. Mm. And, um, Alpha, they back in the day, I think it might have been a Wednesday, Friday, Saturday night. These guys, if they could fight, um, they would go down to the local pub and there'd be a boxing tournament on and they'd fight for X amount of money. And mm. I think he fought a guy called the Alabama Kid um, who was who was in a troop that was touring North Queensland and he fought him and they wanted him to uh, go with the troop and be a full-time boxer, but he couldn't mm. leave home and he wouldn't leave because he was uh, he was possum trapping at the time and, and I think he had six or seven kids. So mm. he, he wasn't going anywhere. He was... He worked with his hands to feed his kids and, and he fought with his hands to feed his kids. He was a pretty tough customer. Yeah. Now, you once asked him to teach you to fight and his response was quite humorous. Well, it was quite funny because his wife's name was Phoebe and um, he had a couple of wild boys, um, Mervyn and Cole, and they loved the stash and mm. wherever there was a bit of noise, they were amongst it in the fights. Um Anyway, uh, I come along and I, I grew up behind all this and they used to talk about it. Anyway, I, I went out to – there was a second-hand furniture shop in Roma, Spencer's. It was like an auctioneering shop. Mm. And the old guy that run it was a bit of an old rogue and I went in there with about $4 my wage from working for Bocky Galton at the Commonwealth Hotel, Hotel just hosing out on a Saturday morning. Yeah. He gave me 4 bucks, and on the way home I bought a leather punching bag. Yeah. Anyway, I copped a bit of a – bit of a tune-up when I got home for buying a punching bag because it had nothing in it. And I said to him, mm. what do you put inside these? And he said, put a couple of 4B2s in it, son, and when it's sawdust, you're ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> that was Frank's uh, advice. What was that yeah. funny cliche that he had? Um, first time a mistake? Yep. Yeah, first time was a mistake. Second time it was stupidity. And the third time you run for your life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he sounds a real character. He always oh, he, had a thoroughbred or two around him. He had you riding work around the property from about 11 or 12. Oh, and we were mad for it. You know, we had a couple of jockey pads and 
We used to think we were McDitman going around to get the milking cows in them at night time, you know, <laughs> barefooted, perfect on riding in a pad, you know, no helmet, no nothing, just then sending them and, yeah. and trying to cut the calves off so you had a reason to chase them, you know. Mm. But, uh, you know, he was he was pretty tough, but it was pretty real, you know. There was there was, uh, there was was no crap. You just, you'd, if you got to have a little bit of a play, you know, it was, it was actually fun. So mm. that didn't happen that much. He was a pretty serious guy. Mm. Your best mate at that stage of your life was a young bloke from Charleville by the name of Peter Moody, and he actually spent some time with you at Augathella. Did you see any sign at that stage that this bloke would one day be rubbing shoulders with royalty at Royal Ascot? I probably run into Pete Moore Charleville. Um, mm. It was about 13. He used to wag a bit of school because the high school was just over from the Charval racetrack, and I'd just gone home with a trainer's license from Neville Begg. And pretty interesting thing, Tappy. What a lot of people don't realise: how many trainers have actually come out of Charleville mm. and trained a metropolitan winner. You know, you got you got the Curry family, you got Ross Coveney, you got the Bakers, Donnie Baker, Duck Baker. Mm. Um, you know, it just goes on and on and on. You know people from Charleville that have got a trainer's licence and you have to go back way back years ago to the guys that were training and I think a lot of us were just natural you know we had to we probably all went into mustering camp when we were young and we rode a horse learned how to feed it and shoe it mm. and we just transformed that into training winners whereas when Pete come along he was 13 and we were pretty wild I think it was Mark Curry and <laughs> Willie Toner and myself Shane Iverson and we're scallywags. We we found a fair bit of mischief, and uh, <laughs> and he was and Pete probably as much as you call it bullying or tormenting or whatever. But yeah. he wanted to be around us, and um and and he was very serious. Always looked after the horses. He turned up with my grandfather with a note pen and a pad, and mm. and um, I think David Power might have talked a bit of sense into him every now and then, and. He was. Uh, he probably wanted to do the right thing. Us, like he wanted to chase horses. I think, and all us blokes wanted to chase girls. That was probably the difference. <laughs> I'll say. Now, your stepfather, John Drennan, was a top-class horsebreaker in his own right. He was working at Roundwick in an era of outstanding breakers. Now, when you decided to come to Sydney to learn more about this specialised craft, what age were you? I reckon I was 16. Right. 16. I don't think I had a driver's license the first year. Then I went back for a couple more years and I had a driver's license. Yeah. yeah. Now, John was one of several top class horse breakers in that era. Yeah. He was probably the best in my eyes. He was the best. Um, he was just a freak all around with a horse. You know, you had guys like Stewie Bathurst who'd clip them and do everything. I never seen Stewie ride one, but mm. he'd run a big team of breakers for Bobby Thompson and co. And then you had Maxi Crockett, he had 50 or 60 and, and mm. broke in for Bart and everybody else at Randwick. But they were the, the three main breakers and they were um, they employed a lot of people and they always sort of worked 40 to 70 horses. You know, they were, yeah. they were amazing blokes and they were tough buggers. You know, they'd have a drink and a fight and, <laughs> and put, put one on your chin if you got out of, got into, you know, a bit Stewie Bathurst, he, he ruled with Iron Fist. You didn't muck around there. And yeah. It abused you and sack you and. And Drennan had uh, he'd put up with you for a while and try and teach you. You know, they were three different personalities, yeah. but at the end of the day, they all had the same job and, and got the same result. John Drennan was getting plenty of work at that time from Tommy Smith. 
and from Neville Begg, who kept a close watch on his horses. He'd pop in there frequently. Neville Begg was the one that probably put the polish on me as a horseman, I reckon, because he, you know, what we used to call the number three at Inglis is there, you know, Neville had come in and if a filly had a scratch on it, you know, two foot six from the bottom of a, of a foot, he'd have a look where it is and then he'd walk around the box and mm. everywhere that was two foot six that she was, he'd be looking for the nail or the splinter that scratched her. Would he really? Yeah. It's just a polished horseman, Neville Begg, yeah. Mm. Well, that attention to detail showed throughout his training career. Yep, and it still does. I was there when he was challenging TJ for a premiership, you know, and nothing changed. Mm. I think the only only thing Neville Begg said to me one day, I asked him about training fillies and he said he asked TJ one day in his early days and TJ said the races are here but some of them ones are yours, they need to be over the road. And I think he was referring to the Royal Show to get a blue ribbon. They must have been a little bit fat. Yeah, I see what you mean. Uh, he was yeah. um, he was a good all-round. Neville Beck trained stallions. He trained colts. He trained geldens, fillies. Yeah. He just was a filly trainer. He was just a great horseman. Your insatiable thirst for knowledge at that time prompted you to ask veterinary surgeon John Peatfield if he'd allow you to accompany him on his stable rounds for a few weeks. All you wanted to do was look, listen and learn, and he agreed. Yeah, he was um, he was one of a half a dozen of the head vets at the time at Randwick under Percy. And I, I, when I look back, I was very lucky to go with John because he, he didn't waste words, just got the job done. And um, the way he went, Pete Field, he was, he was an incredible vet. Um, he assessed with his eyes and, and his ears and his brain. He never opened his mouth much. So you, you sort of had to ask careful questions, but... His routine was very good, his lameness assessments, his hydration. He was, you know, he was a very, very good vet working for TJ. Obviously, they were the they were the kings for a long time. And um, he sort of stamped that in my mind. And it's I still use the same procedures today as what John Petfield taught me oh, how long? Forty years ago, you know, I've seen that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah. You were twenty four years old, Brett, when you decided on a complete change. You put horses on the back burner and you took yourself off to Perth with a good mate called Wayne Bishop who introduced you to the noble art of shearing. Had you shorn a sheep before that? Oh, I could get it off. I could get it off a couple, but I could. I suppose I could shear 30 or 40 when I started with Wayne, so he, he put me on precedent on the board and, mm. and um, I, I could probably shear a sheep. And then he put the polish on me, and and then um, I think it was about my my first season. I was with him. He sent me away to learn to work. You know, he said you can shear a sheep. Now you got to learn to work. So as hard as you go on one, <laughs> yeah, the first you got to be going like that at half past five if you're going to be any good at it. So yeah, he sent me away with uh, with a team of a family called the Haineses. Yeah. And where'd you go, Geraldton? Western Australia, yeah, went up further, went up to a place called Uaru, mm. which, which is uh, just out of Nanyatara Roadhouse. And, um, mm. yeah, that's where I went to work with the Haynes family up there and they were pretty solid shearers. Yeah. Now, you finished up at a place called Karatha in the Pilbara and this was a yep. very important place in your life because <laughs> this is where you were destined to meet a person 
who would influence your life and your future more than any other. Yeah, it's a pretty good story, isn't it? I, I think it was Paul Evans and I, a couple of young fellows, and we took off from Calabaran on the wheat belt WA. And I've got to tell the truth. I hate telling it, but I've got to tell the truth. We <laughs> went. So we played up all the way up and um, we got a job. Paul was pressing and I was sharing with these Haynes family and um, no mattresses. And it was about, I don't know, a mile and a half down to the, from the shearing, shearing quarters to the house. Mm. Mattresses were coming up, so anyway, they um, one bloke come back up with three or four mattresses, and he said, um, he said the the uh, bookkeeper's going to bring the mattresses up. I said, oh yeah, and he said, you want to see her? She's not a bad sort. I said, you kidding me? He said, no. Nah. <laughs> and I grabbed Evans' his head. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to get my own mattress. I'm not waiting for her to come up here. <laughs> yeah. So with that, we went. Paul and I, I think it was we went into the house and. We pulled up halfway, and his Lauren was in a in a uh, station vehicle coming up with about fifteen mattresses on the back of it, and, <laughs> and I said to him, "I said, block her up on the road." So he pulled up in front of her, and I said, "I'll get a lift up with her." And he started laughing, and I jumped in the front seat with her, and I said, "I'm Brett from Queensland." She said, "I'm Lauren from Melbourne, and we've been together ever since." You certainly have. So here you were in your mid twenties, madly in love with a beautiful young Victorian girl. And you both had the travel bug. So over the yeah, next seven correct. years, you covered five Australian states and you funded the adventure, of course, by shearing sheep and finally the inevitable marriage rolled around. Where were you married? Uh, I think I was shearing out of Lucendale and we got married in Melbourne. I did ask her three times, Tappy. Uh, she turned yeah. me away three times. You're kidding. Yeah. On, on what there. grounds? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know. I think she thinks I wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to say, uh, the years roll by. You didn't touch a horse for 14 years. That's correct. That's correct. The only horse I touched in that 14 years was shearing around Blackall for Noel Dawson. And um, and Charlie Prow at the time, I bought him a horse in Sydney his name just eludes me at the moment, but he was a good horse. He'd won in Sydney. And I sent him up to Charlie, and at that time he had a mare called Miss Petty who oh. had won 20-odd 20, 20 straight. Yeah, yeah, I remember her, yeah. And that nearly gave me the bug to get back into it, but, yeah, no, I, I just I was the only horse I'd probably seen or touched. Mm. And then I, um, yeah, I just kept shearing. Mm, Miss Petty, uh, she held the Australian record for a while, didn't she, the most consecutive wins. And a, a yep. picnic in the park might have broken her record a bit later. Yeah, you know, when I look back at those, you, you look at a guy like Charlie Prow, he was a jockey, he ran a cattle station, he was a horse trainer, and he was a real good follower. You know, how much ability would a guy like that have had? Mm. You know, if you'd have given him 50 boxes at Randwick, he was just a great horseman, you know. Oh, so yeah. you just see so many of these guys, bush talent, and, uh, you know, that's... Who never, never want to leave the bush. No, and I'm a bit the same with Scone at the moment. I don't want to leave either. I'm happy. Mm. Well, finally, it was time to settle down and plan your future. And your first marital home was a token wall on the mighty Murray right near the Victorian border. I know you've been asked this question a million times. Why token wall? I bumped into a guy called Mark Baldwin, who was a, a shearing contractor and a progressive one, wanted to get a big team, and he was pretty hungry. And I thought, well, he's the sort of guy I want to work for. Um, 
we introduced him to a bit of seven-day-a-week shearing and, and made a lot of money. And I bought a house right near the race course mm-hmm. in Tokemal. And, um, you know, they talk about Warnable and all these great training centres. Tokemal's probably the most natural training centre that I've been to. And I didn't realise what I had until I left. Mm-hmm. You know, we had winners at Flemington out of there and, and Eagle Farm. Yeah. But we had the Murray River runs through there. Mm-hmm. And there's these there's a beach there that's probably 250, 300 metres long. We used to put the horses in there up to their brand, walk them against a coal current, walk them into the current, you know, rush them into the current. And I had a, a little sand track at the back, a 600-metre sand track, with 15-foot of raw natural sand. So mm-hmm. I worked them on the sand hill. So I had the, I had the sand dune and I had the, had the beach um, down at the river and then we had the track. So, you know... Gee whiz, I wish I could have something like that again pretty close to. Oh, perfect. But it was just a little too much out of the way. Yeah, well, it, it, it probably wasn't when I look back, but our kids were growing up and they were nearly ready to kick into high school, a couple of them, and I, it was time to move on, I thought. And, yeah. And I probably just wanted to capture the horses on the Hume Highway between Sydney and Melbourne. You know, mm. you can get a horse. So we went there breaking in. Uh, Dan Sullivan come with me. We broke 100 horses in the first year. We went to uh, Albury from Tokemore. Mm. And, um, you know, like I could ring up and want three broken in and we could get a truck. It was like a taxi service to Hume Highway. There's every horse truck goes up and down there all day, every day. So you could get a horse out of somewhere mm. every day. You know, you ring me up and say, I've got a horse to train. I could have it on a truck in half an hour nearly. And yeah, amazing. Get your hands on them, you know. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> it's around about this time that you decided to enter a competition in the Riverina to find out how good a shearer you were. Uh, There were three judges. It was well publicised and, as Banjo Patterson said, all the cracks had gathered to the fray. They came from everywhere. It was a pretty hot field, wasn't it? Well, what was happening with the Kiwis were shearing world records and was plenty of good Aussie shearers and a lot better than me around. But I said to Peter Black, he was a worked for Australian Wool Board at the time and he was a shearing instructor. He's 50% Australian and 50% Kiwi, so he was neutral. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I said, what's involved? And he said, big testicles. I said, <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, a lot of them get stage fright. So he agreed to put me through a few training sessions and I flew to Perth and spent a week or two with him and he sharpened me up and said, go home and get fit. And we worked on that. And and um, I rang him one day and I said, I think I'm ready to have a crack. He said, righto. So we found the sheep, which had to meet the right criteria for mm-hmm. international rules. And and then they, uh, you paid your nomination fee, which I think was seven or $8,000. Sunbeam was a sponsor. And, um, one Saturday morning, I got out of bed and decided that I had to shear the most sheep that, you know, anyone had ever shorn in Australia in eight hours um, and and judged and, and ratified world record. And Yeah, and the number was, by the end of the day? 427. 427. It was a world record. It's, it's obviously been broke. What are they up to now? Oh, I don't know, Tappy. They're... We're actually going to go to one soon. A few of us, Anthony Bell and a few of the boys, we're going to have a bit of a gathering at one to go and watch them. I think they've got it in excess of 500-odd now. So, mm. um, yeah, you know, they're just 
better techniques, better gear. Yeah, of course. Everything improves. Um, yeah, they got it pretty right. But I was pretty proud of what I'd done on that day, and um, and I never wanted to shear another sheep. <laughs> I can understand it. Yeah, that was the pinnacle for me. And I, I think I'll be pretty similar if I ever train a group one winner. Don't be surprised if I give it up the next day. So, Hey, let's pause for a break on the podcast. Brett, stand by for a moment. We'll be back in just a jiffy. Entries are now open for the 2021 English Select Yearling Sales Series. The series will again comprise five sales. Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association May Yearling Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. The Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the English Bloodstock team. Well, sometime after the shearing world record, you felt the need to have a serious crack at the horse-breaking business and you sought and gained a very important client. You went to see a bloke called Bart Cummings at Leilani Lodge in High Street at Randwick. What did you ask him? It was pretty awkward, actually, I because um, I'd never spoke to Bart much as a young fellow when I was in Sydney and... and I think it was uh, Billy was his main man. Billy Charles. Billy Charles. I rang Billy and he said, oh, the boss wants to talk to you. And I rang him up and he said, you better come and see me. I said, yeah, right. Oh, he said, I'll, I'll be at Princess Farm. I think he said Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So with that, I, I jumped in the car and, and drove eight hours, stepped out of the car. And he always called his horse breakers cult breaker. Mm-hmm. Never called you Brett, was the cult breaker. Mm-hmm. And he said, how are you going, Cole Breaker? I said, yeah, good, boss, how are you? He said, good. He said, when can you start? I said, whenever you want to. He said, get stuck into them. He said, there's uh, 16 here to start with. Mm. So with that, I drove straight back to Albury, uh, back to Tokemore, picked up my gear, and I drove back up. And 16 weeks later, I drove out of there and broke 64 in. Goodness me. In six weeks? In six weeks, yeah. So he... Uh, he just kept serving them up to me and were there sort of first six weeks we got 60-odd through and and then he just kept punching them into me and, yeah, I can't remember the, the exact amount I'd done but it was 64 or 5 and I was pretty much out of there in 42 or 45 days, yeah. And did you see much of the great man himself during that time? Uh, I've seen a fair bit of him. on. He'd, he'd roll out on Sundays and, mm. you know, he was a few of his quirky little tricks he passed on but not much. He He'd uh, he'd jump in the in his car on a Sunday there if I was riding one around the road because I I worked every day I, I wanted to get into it and get them done and he'd jump in the car and ride alongside of me and have a bit of a yarn every now and then or come down to the roll mm. and um, yeah Anthony was there at the time he was having a spell yeah an enforced spell so he uh, he was living in the unit alongside of me so not only was I learning off the greatest that I was learning a bit off his son along the way so. Yeah. I Great think it's experience. pretty true, Brett. I've heard it said many times that Bart would answer the question you happened to ask, but he wouldn't go beyond that. He, he'd keep plenty to himself. Yeah, I thought he was a great person myself. I didn't have a lot to do with him. 
it was in his latter years, but you know, there was he had a lot of tricks up his sleeve. I was a half brother to Sir Dapper. I think he bought paid a bit of money for him and and he always had a good answer. And I said to him, I said, geez, boss, he's a short going little fella. He said, Oh, he said, he's not matured yet. He said, That's just the shape of his wither. He's got a fat wither. When he develops, he said he'll be able to stride free. Mm-hmm. I said to him, How do you pick your Melbourne Cup horses? He said, You you can't crawl between their hind leg uh, between their front legs. Their front legs are very close together. You know, he always had a Mm-hmm. Always had these few little philosophies, but he was he was pretty sharp. I reckon the best I seen of him after I'd worked for him later in life, he um, um, New Zealand Bloodstock put on a uh, like a cocktail party for people to go to Caraca, mm-hmm. and it was in December. It was at a yacht club, and I distinctly remember flying up from Albury um, to go to it, and all the city boys were rolling in there, all swaggered up, ready to go, and. <laughs> there was half a dozen young stockbrokers turned up there and, and of course they spotted Bart and their face lit up and they wandered over to him and how you going? They started talking. Anyway, one of them said, uh, well, so we've got to wait to get a horse out of Caraca in New Zealand, have we, Bart? And he said, no, he said, uh, I've actually got a couple left over and the bloke said, I'd be interested in them. With that, he put his hand in his pocket and pulled out photos of them. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. Just in case. I went, well, there you go, just too quick. Now, Brad, after you got going from that Albury base that you were telling us about, you made quite a statement on your very first day as a trainer at the Albury races. Four runners, what happened? Yeah, they all won. Oh, what a start. Yeah. We've been a bit lucky like that. It was a bit like that coming to Scone. But, yeah, Albury was good to us. You know, first day you roll out four and – and, you know, it was just the way we went for the next 10 or 12 years. It was just an amazing run. I, I think we had a couple of fives. We trained six one day. It was just some amazing days in Albury. And some of the talent that passed through our hands, jockey-wise and people, was just amazing, you know. You were breaking and pre-training as well as training racehorses for quite a while. And your reputation was growing. And you were approached by Patanak Farm to sort out some horses for the burgeoning empire of Nathan Tinkler, who had not long before burst onto the scene. How did that happen? Um, I think Nathan employed a guy called Rick Connolly mm-hmm. to sort out his mess. And uh, they had horses in apple sheds at Ballarat. They had them in round yards at Cranbourne, you name it. Nathan had just buy these horses and, point to someone and, and then everyone had to go and find them. So Rick rang me and he said, will you clean this mess up? How many can you handle? I said, oh, I said, just send them, mate. We'll sort them out. So I think they had a, might have been a nine horse reloader truck and it turned up, uh, turned up one day with one, three days later with nine. And mm. the next minute we had, um, I was working a hundred odd horses there with, with good staff and, and Patnack were just punching them into us. Yeah. You know, we were just truckload out, truckload in, truckload out. And, yeah. And what were they, Brett? Were they yearlings or two-year-olds or tried horses? What It was pretty early in the piece. I remember I remember Trusting was there as a two-year-old. Mm. So it was that vintage. I think Trusting might have been, away from a few that they purchased older, Trusting was probably the second crop. There might have been one before him. But they were two-year-olds and yearlings. Uh, mainly, and we were just 
yeah, we were breaking them in, educating them, find out what they knew, and we were sending them off to a few to Mick Price at the time, and they were going everywhere. But, mm. oh, geez, I, I'd like to know how many we put through there for Patnack, but we put a lot of horses through there. I'm, I'm still mates with Nathan, talk to him every now and then. Yeah. Um, paid me for every bit of work I've done for him, so mm. I, I can speak good to the guy, you know. Um, yeah. Brett, I read somewhere that you did or you straightened out or broke in or whatever, 170 horses for Patanak in the space of 12 months. Would that be right? Yeah, that could be right. That would be right. They were just mm. – I can't remember the exact numbers, but they were just – yeah, we were hosing the driveway down the dust from them coming in the front gate. I wish it could happen again. I'd like to see Pinkler come back and and go through it all again and, and give me the job of training them. I'd just absolutely love to get my hands on some of them horses. Mm. You loved a horse called Helladeck who was a notorious barrier rogue when he came to you from a Victorian stable. You won seven country races with him in New South Wales and then you took him to Queensland where he reeled off a terrific treble. He won an open race at Eagle Farm. He won the Prime Minister's Cup and the Group 3 BTC Sprint. He was a big track horse, wasn't he? Yeah, he was He was a beautiful horse. Um he was a bit tight in the gates. He wasn't a real bad horse, but he was very tight in the gates. And in them days, you'd go to the races and barrier attendance. You know, you'd, you'd buy him a hamburger and give him the change and they'd look after one for you. Mm-hmm. That's how we got him going. But he'd become very good in the gates gates after a while. But he was just explosive, that horse. He was – Jizzy was a good horse to me. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he was a no he, – he always looked a bit broodmare-like, carried a bit of a condition and a bit of gut-like, but – you know, I used to take to him, working him. You know, I'd grab him. The office in front of the stalks, the uh, stables in in Albury. You know, some days I'd I'd just think about him at ten o'clock in the morning. I'd take him down the pool and swim twenty laps. You know, did you? Yeah. Just because I thought he needed it, I just couldn't get the fat off him. I didn't want to work him hard on his legs and break him down, so I'd just attack him in the pool. And mm. you know, he was he was a marvel. He was a very sharp horse. He ran a track record at the Gold Coast and surprised me. He was he was a good horse. I think Scott Seymour rode him in the Prime Minister's Cup. Yeah, Scotty Seymour rode him in the Prime Minister's Cup and then he wasn't too happy because I dragged him to put Rick McMahon on him at his next start, but McMahon was doing all the work for me and mm. and um, I don't have love affairs with jockeys. That's the last thing I do. <laughs> Zard Dante was a horse who never realised his full potential. He had bone chips, he had a wind infirmity, you name it. He won yeah, only he, three races, Brett, but it should have been a lot more. Yeah, he got locked up in EI. When we had him ready to go in EI, they closed the border, probably stalled his career a bit, but he was just a really, really fast horse. I remember I remember a couple of his good wins, but I think his best run was um, when he, he was – his wind operation was about to be done and we run him in the Gold Coast Guineas. Mm-hmm. I think I'd see this road, him and led by about eight. I thought he was home, and he got run down by El Cambio, mm. and uh, they run a track record. I remember going out the car park that day, and Snowden was leading El Cambio out, and uh, I said to him, I said, I'm going to Burke tomorrow with the team. I suppose I'll see you there too. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> he cop it sweet? Yeah, of course he does. Yeah. He's a competitor. He's still the same. He's a good guy. Another very smart horse you got out of Victoria was Niblick. You won a national sprint at Canberra with him and an Albury Gull Cup. You survived a protest at Albury, I think. 
Yeah, it was. Um, I think we bought him at an English sale on a Williams Bursal and a guy called Emil Panossian mm. from WA, a little short Armenian, uh, ripping little follower. He, he said, "Buy me a horse," and um, I got paid one hundred eighty thousand for him. Anyway, the next minute, English has tapped me on the shoulder and they said that horse has been paid for, and, and that was how Emil operated. He, he paid straight away, so mm. I took him home and and um, it was sort of Octoberish and. Neil got a bit excited about having this horse, and then I think he, him and Lindsay Smith were close mates, and they took him home to Perth, and they might have won a week one with him, and he didn't go as good as he could. And I was actually in Bali with the family on Christmas, and um, I was watching this horse go around in Perth, and I rang Emil up, and I said, what are you doing with that horse? And he had a bit of a cry and a whinge and said, ah, I can't get my money back. And I said, well, put him on a truck and and send him over to me and I'll get him ready for something. He said, it's 45 degrees on the Nullarbor. I said, well, he's rock hard fit. He'll travel best. Send him. So <laughs> so he believed in me and put him on the truck and um, mm. he sent him home. And anyway, we done what we done. We wound him up and I think we turned up in the national sprint first up with him at Canberra. And yeah. Jay Mac rode him, James McDonald. Mm. And uh, he was only a kid at the time, James. And, Come out and no spurs on. I said, You better go and put some spurs on, son. Eh? Mm. So he, he came and rode him. And I said to Emil, I said, I think we're unbeatable. And he had a good punt, Emil. I think he had 10,000 on him. Good heavens. 12 or 14 to 1. And mm. and he was almost, he was nearly out of him. And uh, I said to him 10 days later, I said, We'll win the Albury Cup. And he, I think he called me a lunatic. Did he? <laughs> and I said, No, he said, I'm not coming over. He said, Bretto, Bretto. He said, 10 days in a in between 1,400 to 2,000, he said he can't do it second up. So, mm. But he was happy to collect the check and the trophy. So, Yeah, and then there was a protest, but it was thrown out. Oh, we were so lucky. What happened was, I think it was uh, Joy McNeil rode the winner, Penza run third, yeah, and we run we run second, and Penza protested against second and first. Right. Uh, second dismissed, first upheld, and, and we were – relegated to the winner so it was yeah it was a pretty special day too to win an albury cup i'd like to win one fair and square but i'll take that one now the modern star what a genuine tough old warrior 53 starts 12 wins 14 placings almost eight hundred thousand dollars. he won the listed razor sharp at randwick with tommy berry he won the listed june stakes at randwick with josh adams he won the Group 2 Morton Cup on the Sunshine Coast with Sky Bogenhuber. But you tell me he was quite a challenge early on. Oh, he's a horrible horse to train. Oh, yeah. His box, the only thing in his that he had is he would eat seven or eight kilos of grain a day, whether he was on the truck, on the ground, in a box, in a yard, but he would box walk and weave all day, all night. But he'd keep eating. But he'd keep eating. Yeah, he was mm. a lunatic, but he would keep eating. I remember numerous occasions saddling him up at the races, Steph and I. He was a nightmare to saddle up some days. But, gee whiz, when he got out on the track, he was a demon. He was tough. and mm. He was, was never a brilliant horse at track work. He was never a horse that you got excited about going to the races and say, hey, Tappy, this is just going to win today, you know? Yeah. Never threw off them vibes. He was just an iron horse. He was in the first, you know, first four or five every race you took him to. He, I don't know, he'd done two or three spring carnivals, a couple of winter carnivals, you know, an autumn in Melbourne, Sydney. He was just everywhere. He was 
on the truck and go and pick a race and send him. He was just a gem, you know. Star boy's done a good job for you. Seven wins, even though he's had foot problems. Is he in work currently? Just come back from a throat throat operation. Um, yeah, he's a he's just a you know one of them genuine tough horses that's you know gets out works first in the morning and if there's a tough race on, you know he's your he's your prize fighter. He turns up and just a good tough horse, lovely horse to train. You know he's. Mm. Yeah, I suppose you'd call him a lesser bred, you know, he's by pluck. But mm. he's uh yeah, he's just been a great horse to me too, you know. These horses people don't realise, you know, they they earn three hundred thousand, you know, third they put thirty thousand in the bin for you, it's a lot of money, you know. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you just do your best you can with them. And what about Fender? He's won four from six, two of them in town, and he ran a very respectable race in the Kosciuszko. You think there may have been excuses at Randwick? Yeah, I, I just think he might have been a touch out of his comfort zone. Probably, you know, the high cruising speed probably brought him undone. 1,200 metres just didn't allow him to come on. Even though he ground through the line only to be beaten two and a half, I think he uh, he might have been better just going back a length and a half. But, you know, we're, we're always good when we look back. Looking forward, I'm probably going to run him in a mile-listed race at Hawkesbury in, um, in 10 days. Mm, good. We'll watch out for him. Now, of the 60 horses you have in work, Brett, currently, is there one who earns the better-than-average tag? Yeah. There's a cult there called Pinnacle Prince is a pretty nice horse. Mm. Um, he doesn't have to improve much to be, you know, in the top half a dozen that we've had. Um, he's just got to improve a little bit, which he should in his second preparation. But he's a lovely animal. Um great-looking specimen and just a gentleman. So he won't run out of breeding. He's by Hinchinbrook out of a Group 1 winner. Yeah. Um, he's down as a bell so far. So, yeah, Pinnacle Prince, he's the one that I'd be hanging my hat on for the next three to six months. Well, he won a scone maiden back in August. Then you took him for a tab highway, a Class 2. And what do you think he ran second to? It's me. Yeah, Kieran rode him that day. I, we might have got one pair back further than maybe we should have been in hindsight, but, you know, we wanted to ride him a touch quiet and teach him something. But, you know, who was to uh, – she was just explosive. That's about when she started breaking 33s and yeah, look at me tag on a forehead, you know. So mm. so where is he now, Brett? I've uh, been back at work about 36 days, Tappy, so he's um, – He's uh, probably, you know, around the 42-day mark, he'll have a jump out and, and then we'll we'll up the ante on him a bit from them. So he's he mm. might have a Christmas ham in him. Beautiful. Pinnacle Prince. Now, I take it your good wife, that lady you met with the mattresses at Karatha, <laughs> continues to play a lead role in the operation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, four kids are red, even though you wouldn't think it when you have a look at the food bill every week. <laughs> <laughs> they all left home and they've all come back. So uh, <laughs> it's like the, you know, COVID. They've all come home for covering COVID. But uh, happy to have them home. But yeah, yeah Loz is, um, she was quite bored doing the, the counts for 100 horses. And and uh, she'd done a push bike ride last year for the for the Peter Mac in, uh, in Tasmania. It was a grueling event, three days riding through the hills. And, uh, she put that in the in the job bucket, done, and anyway, she went and bought herself a uh, 
a job the other day. She went and bought the bottle shop in Aberdeen, the celebrations there. So yeah, I think it's. But I'm not sure whether it's to get out of the house or to get away from me or to earn herself some money. I'm I'm not too sure. So she's a businesswoman now in Aberdeen. Yeah, yeah. Good on. She's, we wish her well. I'll pop in for a bottle of Chardonnay. First time I'm on my way through. Well, they're starting to roll in there now. Buckley rolled in there the other day and, and bought a beer, and, and he's very, very careful, Grant. And then you got uh, Gaz Harley and, and Carmody. They're all starting to support us. So I said, oh, you'll have to put the prices up a bit, Dale, if they're going to go in there, them blokes. <laughs> Just a quick check on the ages of those four kids. Jessica's 24, Georgie's 22, Jack's 21, and Sam's 19. And you told me once he fancies a punt. Sam? Hmm. Yes, and guess where he uh, resides when he's in Melbourne? He's, he's finished his boarding school and he's doing a, a double degree now in law and commerce, but he's found himself accommodation mm-hmm. in the corner of a house in Melbourne, which is rented by Kieran Ma. Good heavens. Now, Kieran's Ma said to me, Kieran Ma's mother said to me, Brett, are you sure that's suitable accommodation for a child that's doing law? <laughs> yeah, and a, and a child who will cop a tip at the drop of a hat. <laughs> yeah, no, he's um, he's pretty measured, but he he's uh, he's been watching e-trackers and and stuff all his life, and he's he's sporting minded, so he's he's all over the over the punt and the form and and trying to do a bit of study in the meantime. I hope he backed the Cox Plate winner from the the Mar and Eustace stable. He was. Um, I actually watched the race with him on the couch. He was a bit dejected that he's not there for the party, actually. <laughs> now, just quickly, Brett, a few years ago, you went into the breeding business. You owned Jindera Park Stud near Albury and you stood stallions like Duporth, Fast and Famous, Illustrious Blue, Nom de Jour and Var Pensiero. But things changed when you decided to make the move to Scone. You had to do something about Ginger of Park and you sold it. Any regrets? Oh, look, it, if I was probably that little bit of gypsy in me, Johnny, is what caused the move. There was a guy come along and offered us um, a considerable amount of money for the farm. Yep. Wasn't interested in the horses or whatever, but he wanted the land and the and the house and stables. And um, lo and behold, he come up with the money and he and he paid for it. And I, we just dispersed stallions. I think Murder Jewel was sold and um, Vapensiero relocated. Fast and Famous went to Turkey, and Duporth um, he went to Karingal for a couple of years. So we just. I could have stayed there, but I had that Hunter Valley bug. I just, I just wanted to get to the Hunter and get amongst them, and uh, so we were lucky enough to sell it all. And the cream rose to the top last Saturday week when you won the Kosciuszko. Now, Brett, it's been a hell of a journey from those early days at Augathala through the dust and flies of many a shearing shed to the winner's circle at Royal Randwick, winning races like the Kosciuszko. I wouldn't think you'd be changing too much, would you, if you had it all over again? Nothing, John. Not a thing. I wouldn't change yesterday and for a minute. You know, I'm I'm happy with every move I've ever made in life. There's there's never been many regrets. There's been a few mistakes, but no regrets. 
<laughs> Good on you, mate. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, John. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound.